I can't believe it. It feels like we just started Advent, but we're here at the final week. It's actually officially seven days till Christmas. Our time of waiting, which is what Advent refers to an arrival, our time of waiting is over as the arrival of Christmas is just around the corner. And as we near the end of our Advent journey, I hope that we have started to have a wider view of the significance of Christmas. Because it, it, it can be far too tempting these days to let one Christmas simply pass into the next. Uh, for many of us, it almost becomes rote that after December 25th, it's just easy. Whether it's the day after or a couple of days after, we just turn off the lights, we put everything away, and we just start counting the days until the next holiday. And if you have any doubt of that, just go into any store that you like to shop in on December 26th, and they have moved on. But we've learned together, I hope, that Christmas is more than a day. Even more than a season of our lives, Christmas, as we've heard the scriptures proclaim, is our final destiny. The mind-numbing, jaw-dropping, history-making coming of Emmanuel, of God with us, of Jesus into our lives and our world, is just is more than a historical event. The gift in the manger, the babe in the straw, is a foretaste, the beginning of a countdown to where all of history is heading. We know something in the church that is often forgot outside the walls of the church, that the first coming of Christ anticipates a second coming. Now, many of us know that the details of this second coming are detailed in our final book of the Bible, Revelation, exiled on the island of Patmos, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. John, the author of one of our four Gospels, receives an elaborate and extended vision of this second coming. And he attempts, in the pages that are there, to describe in language that we will understand the future, really, of the universe, the cosmos. Today, as we draw nearer to celebrating Jesus' first arrival, let us also anticipate his envisioned return, as recorded by John. From Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> the book of Revelation, I mean, I, I read the best part, the book of Revelation is a strange sort of literature, isn't it? Many are intimidated by it. Many, frankly, just don't even read it. We hear that word apocalypse. I mean, that's all it takes. You hear that word apocalypse, and we all get unified visions of anarchy and devastation. The end of the world. But John's vision, if you've actually ever read Revelation, if we were to spend time in its pages beyond just the brief section that we've looked at, John's actual vision is not that grim. It's one of encouragement, not despair. 
Apocalypse means unveiling. And it refers to the revelation of something about reality that we otherwise wouldn't see. And it specifically refers to something about reality in the future. John was given this vision and wrote down these words at a time when Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Much of the momentum and the energy of the early church had waned because Christians were being beaten. They were being alienated. They were driven into hiding. Some were arrested and imprisoned. Many were dying for their faith, giving their lives for their belief in Jesus. And in a time of great darkness and discouragement, most were losing hope and wondering if their waiting was in vain. Yes, Christ had come, but would he ever return? And so God gives John a vision, a revelation of what's really happening behind the scenes, what's really at stake, and God gives John a vision of ultimately what the real outcome of all of it will be. I think what makes Revelation intimidating to read is that John's vision is recorded, for the most part, by means of symbols. I mean, there are all kinds, if you go, just were to peruse it really quickly, or even right now, there's all kinds of symbolic words and pictures throughout this book. And John does this for a variety of reasons. The most significant of which is he's trying to describe things that he, that he and we otherwise wouldn't understand. I mean, how else but through pictures does one describe their understanding of a future and its specifics that is, that is centuries away? How, how do you put that into words? How do you conceptualize your perceptions of what you're seeing going on in the foreign nature of the spiritual realm other than through symbols and signs that are familiar to you? But John also uses symbolic words and pictures as a form of code to his readers. To people who are being persecuted and oppressed, there's a specific meaning and relevance to the pictures, to the certain words that he emphasizes, to the highlighted numbers. The meaning is coded so as to speak to the insiders, but to exclude the outsiders. In many ways, what John is attempting to do is not to bring further insecurity and judgment upon those who are suffering, those who are already out there, those who are already being thrown in prison and giving their lives. John is trying to give something for those who are languishing, something to hold on to, hope. And what's true about John's revelation then remains true now. And it's important for us to hear that. What's true about John's revelation then remains true for us now because there are many of us, as I said, who don't even read this book at all. We just scratch our heads and go, ah, I don't get it. But then there are others of us who, for Revelation, Revelation serves as nothing more than a curiosity or an obsession. We become fixated, some of us, on unlocking the timetable of John's prophetic visions, of, of, of nailing down when and how the end will come. And this is really kind of a, a failed effort because Jesus himself said, no one knows the hour or the day. And yet, despite Jesus telling us that, we persist, many of us, in trying to unlock the timetable. Some of us, in fact, even use our perceived interpretation of Revelation as a license to foster fear and insecurity, to foster judgment. As insiders, we rebuke outsiders who just don't see the signs, who just don't get it. Beloved, I say this humbly, and I say this with respect to a, a recognizing a range of interpretations of what John has for us here. But living in light of the end, 
God gives John this vision. John writes down these words. Living in light of the end is about far more than speculating on the rapture. The millennium or when Christ will return. God's unveiling of the end is a means, meant to be a means of encouragement in the present. And it's encouragement that's needed in a world today that's still plagued. Much like in John's day, plagued by fear, plagued by insecurity, plagued by intolerance. It's a word that's needed in a world plagued by such things and in a church in a similar place. Because the vision of too many people these days is limited. For many of us, our vision has become so limited. To them, to us, we see a world, the world in which we live in, it, it seems cold. It seems unchangeable. It seems frozen solid with little hope for much else. Maybe you're one here today who has felt the frost lately. Maybe you've remarked out loud or in your head as you turn on the news that you discover the world isn't much different than when you went to bed last night. Another year passes. Another Christmas is nearly here. And maybe you're someone this morning who looked in the mirror and realized you're not that much different. The family struggles seem familiar, don't they? The personal stress seems to be worse, not better. Our losses still seem fresh. Our relationship with God seems strained, maybe distant. And if you're in that place, if that's how you begin to see things, you can't help but ask, maybe not out loud, why bother? Why bother? I, I don't think it's a coincidence that at a time of year when many of us are trying to make merry, that some of us have a different vision. I don't think it's a coincidence that at a time that's supposed to be, as I've heard, you've heard, the most wonderful time of the year, many, more than at any other time in the year, take their lives. Is there any hope? Is there any hope is the question that lingers out there for so many in our world and in the church. Is there any hope? Or maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you don't have any problem finding encouragement from the revelation of John. Maybe that's not your issue at all. You can't relate to that. Maybe you don't have a problem finding encouragement from John's revelation. Perhaps you take so much encouragement, so much comfort from the awareness of Jesus' final victory Perhaps you're so convinced that your interpretive timetable is going to play out just so that you see everything that's happening in front of you as a sign of the times. And you see everything that way and therefore are content to just wait. Maybe, and you might not like to hear this, maybe you're even just a little bit smug in your detachment from the goings-on in the here and now. If that speaks to where you are, Hear John, because knowing that God wins, and that is ultimately in two words the summation of the book of Revelation. God wins. Knowing that God wins doesn't permit us to sit around and wait for that final victory to be revealed. And again, if you think I'm speaking out of turn, I point back to our book, I point back to our story, because it, it wasn't that long ago that some Christians had a similar disposition. They lived in, in the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. And they decided that since Jesus was coming soon, they might as well take it easy and rely on the charity of their Christian brothers and sisters. Wait it out. Not pay any attention to what was going on. And in his second letter to that church in Thessalonica, the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul strongly rebukes those Christians. 
God's revelation of the future, beloved, is not intended as an excuse to divorce ourselves from the realities that are right in front of us. It's meant to shape and guide how we live and act now. You know, in some ways, with 21 kind of is the capstone, I feel like what we have here in Revelation is the tale of two cities. If you're familiar at all with this book, it's the tale of two cities, of Babylon and Jerusalem. In John's vision, Babylon doesn't represent a geographic city in the Middle East. In John's vision, it represents all of human culture, all of human community in opposition to God. It symbolizes the buying and selling of consumerism, the wheeling and dealing of politics, the key ways that we try to live our lives away from God. Babylon, if you will, is a self-made city. The places where we try to earn our ways in the world, to pay our way out of trouble, to fill our pride, to satisfy our greed, to define our own sense of justice. And in contrast, Jerusalem is the spiritual counterpart to Babylon in John's vision. As a city, she represents a people created by God as a light, as an example, as a beacon to heaven and and earth intertwined, a community that's subject to, that's living with God. There's nothing individualistic in Jerusalem. Life here is not earned in Jerusalem. Salvation cannot be bought or sold in Jerusalem. There is only in Jerusalem this continual picture of a great multitude unified in worship and service, in love and stewardship. Beloved, I think in many ways the tale of these two cities also reflects the tale of two Christmases. We are surrounded, surrounded We are inundated, we are conditioned to celebrate a commercial Christmas. If you will, a Babylonian Christmas. We count the shopping days till Christmas. We brave the malls or surf the web looking for the best deal to tell the ones we love, the ones that we're close to, that they matter in our lives. Our love, the value of our gift, is measured by most not in the spirit of giving, but in how much we spent on it. How prestigious the store was that the gift came from. We connect with each other during the season, not in a messy, relational, spiritual way. We connect by proxy. We connect by the proxy of boxes and gift cards, bright with the goodwill of wrapping paper. We address each other not by name, but through twos and froms and fours, written on hasty, ink-stained tags. There's so much stress, so much preparing to do with this commercial Christmas that it's ironically both festive and lonely at the same time. In our celebration, we have little time to, 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 or energy to reflect, to prepare our hearts, to rest in the anticipation. We have no time to think of the future. Commercial Christmas is Babylon. And beloved, what we, what we're, we know and yet we can't seem to be break free from our exile, is that all of this consumerism will never lead to consummation in our lives. Every purchase we make, every vote we cast, everything we do will not bring the consummation, the fulfillment for which we look, for which we long for, for which we hope at Christmas time. There are no saviors in Washington. The problems of this world are too big for any and all political parties. Money cannot buy happiness. There is no law that can be passed which will bring peace that lasts, love beyond corruption, grace that satisfies and yet triumphs over judgment. 
Christmas isn't about buying something or something being bought for us. Christmas, beloved, is about redemption. Christmas is about being redeemed, being ourselves bought back from a hopeless situation, being brought back to a place that is healthy, a place that is useful, a place that is good. The redemption of Christmas is not about Babylon, it's about Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. You know, perhaps when we heard these words from Revelation 21, and they're often quoted, again, it's the best part of the story. Perhaps when we hear these words of a new heavens and a new earth, we, we, we might, it might lead us to think that God is going to start from scratch. That what will actually happen at the end of history will be unrecognizable. And I don't know if you find this, but more and more within the church, that's the kind of talk that comes about, about what we're waiting for. That what will happen at the end of time will be unrecognizable. But what we need to see, it's so crucial for us to see, to appreciate that this is about redemption. That it's here in Revelation and John's vision and elsewhere in Scripture is that there is a continuity between what is happening now with what will happen then. It's new. Yes, it's new, but it's still heaven and earth. Not totally alien and different from what we have now. There seems to be water. There seems to be air. There seems to be gravity. There will still be matter. Eternity is not as we often paint it. Within the church is merely ethereal. We start talking about eternity and we get all ethereal. We're all floating in the clouds somewhere. Biblically, you can't find that. Eternity, biblically, is tangible. It's tangible. It, it includes us in physical, resurrected bodies. Paul tells us, to those who wanted to get ethereal about eternity, that we will have a body. And that body will have a continuity with what we are now. It'll be somehow different, somehow better, but it will have a continuity with what we are now. Beloved, if what was to come was so radically different, totally different, absolutely different, doesn't it make sense that we wouldn't necessarily be a part of it? And yet our future is described by Isaiah as a time of fruitful labor. Isaiah tells us that in eternity we will build houses and dwell in them. We will not play harps. We will build houses and dwell in them. We will plant vineyards and eat our fruit, Isaiah says. Isaiah is telling us that in eternity there is meaningful work to do. I talked to so many, and this actually tends to be younger people, because of the limited vision that we have of the Christmas yet to come, young, our younger people think that what is to come is boring. Heaven and earth coming together, the end of, of, the, of the world as we know it, the new heavens and the new earth is anything but boring. God speaks through John and Isaiah and Paul that we will be useful, we will be fruitful, we, and we will be working no longer against nature, and nature will no longer be working against us. The promise, beloved, that we celebrate in Advent is not pie in the sky, by and by when we die. That is not why we are here. It's not about replacement. It's not escaping earth and going to some other place where bodies and creation are no more. John's vision is... Amazing, startling, because he declares redemption. What's promised is called the new Jerusalem, and that means there's a connection to the old Jerusalem. A redemption is taking place. A city that was called to know God that stoned its prophets and rejected Jesus is redeemed, is made new. A city that represents all that is weak and willful about the people of God in every age is brought under the rightful rule of its king. It is beautifully dressed as a bride for her husband. 
Salvation is not us going to God. The new Jerusalem descends from God to us. Salvation is not found in any place. Salvation is found only in God. As we started at Advent, we often talk about heaven and salvation as going to heaven. But that's only adequate. That only works if we realize that biblically, heaven is a metaphor for dwelling in God. Dwelling in God. So, beloved, applying this beyond our lives, but just to Christmas. Christmas is not about replacement. And yet, for many of us living in a Babylonian Christmas, that's exactly what Christmas is. Christmas is about next year's model. Christmas is about bigger and better, replacing last year's efforts. But that's not a biblical Christmas. That's not Christmas in Jerusalem. That's Christmas in Babylon. Christmas in Jerusalem is about redemption. God reaching back through time, redeeming the whole story of human history. It's not just comfort. It's not just forgetting the past. I don't know if you remember this Christmas special, but hopefully this image will speak to you. We all have, all of us, I'm not going to ask you to name them out loud, but we all have our own island of misfit toys in our lives. We all have the effects of brokenness and sin in our lives. But it's not an island. It's not an island. There is no such thing as individual sin and salvation biblically. Individual sin and salvation biblically is an oxymoron and a heresy at best. Salvation, John proclaims through his vision. Paul proclaims through his letters. Isaiah calls forth with Christ's coming. Salvation cannot come for me in its full sense as long as the terrible effects of my sins continue to ripple through the world. What God promises is not to forgive and forget, as we like to say. What God promises is to forgive and redeem. The chain reaction of human sin will be ended and all the tears will be wiped away. The tears that God wipes away, beloved, are not only the tears that we shed. The tears that God will wipe away will also be the tears that we have caused. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we make too much of the cultural novelty that's a Babylonian Christmas. We make too much of celebrating the perpetual dark winter of our world and labeling it happy holidays even as we make too little of the unlikely truth of Christmas, that with the birth of a child, with Jesus, the great thaw in our world has begun. With the first coming, that first Christmas, a stable in a cold world was good enough for our Lord. From the manger to the cross, Jesus entered the storm front of our lives and faced the bitter chill of this world. The death of winter was eclipsed by the spring of resurrection. But as we can see each and every day of our lives in the aftermath, it appears that the cold won't give up without a struggle. The battle is on. It is still winter. And sometimes it's Christmas. Here and there, life springs up. Here and there, the world is healed. Here and there, hope takes root. And it's Christmas. The first Christmas comes, beloved, bringing the gifts that we need to serve Christ while an old world and old life melts away and waits for a new one to be born. We cannot lose heart. We cannot get sidetracked because the day is coming. The Christmas is coming when all that we have ever longed for will have its true fulfillment. We are bound to make too little of Christmas if we don't make enough 
of the return of Christ. For scripture says there is a greater Christmas still to come. On that Christmas, the great thaw in our lives and in our world will be complete. On that day, we will all be home for Christmas, safe in the house that the Lord has prepared for us, the home that our hearts have always desired. On that Christmas, the deepest part of us is going to sing. That deep, dark, hurt place, that lonely place will sing. With heaven and nature, it will sing joy to the world. Because that empty place inside of us all is going to be filled to the brim by the one who always belonged there. On that day, heaven will not come to our world for a visit. Our king, the Lord of heaven, will arrive and come to stay forever. He who is seated at the throne will make all things new. Beloved, it will always be Christmas. An eternal Christmas that is both familiar And yet, unlike any we have ever known or celebrated before, one without tears, one without mourning, one without pain, one that we don't have to pack away in boxes until next year, one that we cannot buy or sell. We can only imagine what it will be, but we can get specific with what we can anticipate based upon what we are given. No more brain tumors, no more heart attacks, no more strokes, no more failing eyes. No more arthritis, no more cancer, no more tragic accidents, no more natural disasters, no more terrorist attacks, no more genocide, no more rebellion, no more poverty, no more infertility, no more orphans, no more divorce, no more widows, no more worries, no more gossip, no more lies, no more disappointment, no more death. The greater Christmas, the new Jerusalem, God's gift to a frozen world. And we can discern its outline. We can feel its heat, its warmth already in the gospel of Jesus, crucified and risen. Beloved, if this is the final destination of human history, if we proclaim it, if we profess it, if we believe it, if this is the real Christmas that we are waiting for, then why do we continue to shop in Babylon? If this is what God is moving history towards, If this is what all Christmases, past and present, point towards, how are we cooperating and joining God in preparing for that advent? Because the redemption of Christmas is one that God wants to spread even farther than it is spread now. Because this God is with us already in the proclamation of the gospel, at this table, in the spirit filling the church, we are continually to bear witness to what God has done in Christ what God is doing in our lives. The Apostle Paul puts it this simply in 2 Corinthians. So anyone, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Paul is saying, yes, that new creation is coming, but if we are in Christ, it has already come. It has already begun in our lives. And that means that even though the promised redemption of all things lies in the future, beloved, the gift of the first Christmas is the experience of this greater Christmas, of this newness of life now. And it means celebrating as the church Christmas, not the Babylonian way, but the Bethlehem way. It means that we come bearing gifts for which there is no price tag. It means that we come together bearing gifts that will not fit in tiny boxes. 
It means that we give and share the good news, the new life that we have received. It means, as Paul will write, that we become ambassadors of reconciliation and not secret Santas. It means that we reach out with grace and mercy and get invested in the lives of those around us. We offer healing to the sick, companionship to the brokenhearted, food to the hungry, and shelter for the naked. In other words, we offer those things that in the end, Jesus, that child in the manger, receives as if they were done to him personally. I wish you could have been there yesterday. I wish you could have been at the Habitat dedication. I wish you could have been there because that was a glimpse of heaven on earth. That was a glimpse of Christmas. Two houses built in 45 days. Impossible in Huntington Beach, impossible in the midst of all the delays, and yet it happened. It happened, and it wasn't something that could be bought. It was something for people operating in faith, operating in obedience, seeing light in the midst of darkness. And yesterday was the culmination, the consummation, a glimpse of what will one day be for us all as two families stood on the threshold of what they never thought they would see. One family, and it was so perfect, so two different stories, one family the Sendejas family who you met last week, who all along got to build and to see it coming into fruition, anticipating, waiting, hoping, and finally getting to see it fulfilled. And that's one picture for us in the church, those of us who know Christ, waiting, and it comes to fulfillment. But then there was the Ware family who you didn't get the chance to meet, the Ware family who only found out a week ago only a week ago that a week before Christmas they would get a home. Only a week ago after months of their hopes being up and down, of thinking that they were last on the list, there was no chance that someone else was going to get it. It wasn't going to happen. Preparing that it just wasn't going to happen, that God couldn't do it. And they stood in front of us all, people they didn't know, because unlike the houses, they hadn't been a part of the journey. They looked into the faces of people they didn't know, who didn't know them, and with tears of joy said, we love you all. We love you all. Because with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And they come to fruition when we, as the people of God, commit ourselves to being the hands and feet of the revelation of heaven on earth of what will be. Beloved, let us be witnesses to the coming of that new city with our words and with our lives. Let us carry gracious hints of its coming as we live out costly love for one another, as we practice radical hospitality, hospitality to those otherwise left outside. Let us reflect the character of God who will wipe away every tear when we meet the needs of every human heart by extending compassion and justice to all we encounter. Celebrating Christmas in Jerusalem is more than the experience of individual gifts. It's more than personal forgiveness and renewal. It is the gift. It is the invitation to live in the light of the new creation. The future restoration and redemption of the world. Amen?